you've been around uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, you'll know that we are um, camping in the Gospel of John uh, for a good length of time. I don't think we quite know when this is going to end, but the plan is to do John. We want to look at his letters. We want to look at Revelation. Um, and so far, I think we're three or four weeks in. We are today kicking off into uh, chapter two. So has, everyone been, has everyone been enjoying John so far? All right. Glad, glad, glad we're doing John. Come on, people. Let's have a bit more enthusiasm today. Yeah, that would be good. Um, so if you were here the last couple of weeks or you've read the Gospel of John, at the beginning of his letter, remember that when John wrote his, le- his Gospel, there were no such things as chapters and verses, remember? That was added later uh, in the Bible. But at the beginning of his Gospel, he makes these big claims about who Jesus is, which is what makes up chapter one of our Bibles. He makes these big claims. He says, Jesus is the Word. He's the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God. He's the light. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man, etc., etc. There are many others. And you kind of finish chapter one with this kind of big claims about this is who Jesus is. And his introduction in chapter one is then followed by a long section uh, from chapter two to chapter 12, where John says, this is who I've said he is. Now let me prove to you who he is by his works and by his miracles and by what he does. And through these next 10 chapters, through chapter 2 to chapter 12, what John does is he carefully selects seven miracles, or he calls them signs, um, which Jesus did, which back up what he says about Jesus in chapter 1, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. And these seven signs help us to understand what John is trying to do in the Gospel of John, which we find out later. Is this working? Are we okay to do it from the back? John writes at the end of his gospel, his reason for writing. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the signs that he do write about, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John carefully selects signs that help him and help the reader to understand that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would receive life in his name. In most gospel writers, when they refer to miracles, they use a Greek word uh, which we translate as power. Dynamis is the kind of Greek word that is used in that. But John intentionally calls them signs, right the way through his letter. And the reason he calls them signs is that for John, the miracles act as a signpost. They actually point beyond the miracle itself to help us understand who Jesus Christ is and to reveal his glory and to reveal who he is and that by by understanding the miracle and the sign, we may believe in who he is. So so for John, miracles are like a signpost. Okay, they point to Jesus. They point beyond the miracle itself to who this Jesus is that he's writing about. And so today we're going to look at the first miracle that Jesus did, the first sign that John records Uh, which is actually the first sign um, in Jesus' public ministry, the wedding at Cana, which is a very famous passage, which I'm sure lots of you may have read um, before. So I'm going to read it, and then hopefully going to unpack it and help us to see the richness of what John is trying to communicate in this. Somebody said to me a while back that the Gospel of John is like an onion. It has multiple layers, okay? So you have, we're going to try today to look beyond the obvious and look deeply at what John is trying to communicate about who Jesus is through what Jesus does at the wedding at Cana. 
So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars, water jars, there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested or revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So here we have the scene that Jesus has just called some of his disciples and he gets invited to a wedding. We don't actually know whose wedding it is. It doesn't say. Um, Some commentators would say it's a relative of Mary's, but we don't actually know whose wedding he gets invited to. But we're in this wedding, a celebration, a feast, a party, if you like, a joyous occasion where there is much happiness and much joy taking place. And while there is feasting and celebration, a problem arises. And the problem is this, the wine has run out. Now, for some of you, you might think, what's the big issue? What's the big problem? All right, just drink some water. Drink something else, if you like. When Sarah and I got married, I remember this, uh, we had this big debate about how much wine to put on the tables. You know when you sit around tables, how much wine should we put on the tables for people? And we landed on two bottles of wine per table, one red, one white. I mean, it was really expensive anyway, because you had to pay the hotel corkage to open the wine, five pound a bottle for them just to open a bottle of wine. Anyway, we decided on two bottles of wine per table. And when the wine, when the wine ran out, it was like, the wine's out, go buy yourself a drink at the bar if you want a drink. What's the big problem, really? Now, my, my, I remember my university friends going around after the meal and hoarding all the leftover bits of wine. And so their table had about 15 bottles of wine on it that people hadn't actually drunk. But in our, in our context, it didn't matter if we ran out of wine because if people wanted a drink, either water or another beverage, they could just go to a bar and buy it. It's not really a problem. So in our eyes and in our way of thinking, we can go, what's the big issue here? But this is a huge deal in the culture of the day. In Jewish, in Jewish culture, weddings would last for several days, sometimes up to a week, which is quite a long time. And running out of wine equals bringing shame and embarrassment on yourself and on your family. It was actually a social disgrace to run out of wine, and that social disgrace would never be forgotten by your community. Remember that people lived in community very closely. And for the rest of your days as a married couple, it would go around, that that was the couple, they ran out of wine. Do you remember their wedding? Do you remember what happened at their wedding? What embarrassment. They're an embarrassment as a family. And it was actually known that people would actually take lawsuits against people who ran out of wine at a wedding. So if you ever go to a wedding and they run out of wine, feel free to take someone to court over it. That was the, so the scale of the problem, it's not a minor issue at play here. 
Okay, there's an issue of social embarrassment and shame and disgrace that is going to be upon this bride and groom and their family for all time. Now, we don't know why they ran out of wine. Some people say more people came to the wedding than, than they thought about. Others say maybe the family didn't have a lot of money and so they'd undercated for how much wine they would need for the celebration. We don't actually know, um, but that's not really the problem. What happens then is that Mary decides to take this burden on herself and go to Jesus. And she tells him the problem. And she says, Jesus, there's an issue here. The wine has gone. They've run out of wine. Now, well, Mary, maybe she's willing him on, saying, I know who you are, Jesus. I know you're the Son of God, and I'm willing you to reveal your glory here. I'm willing for you to, to, to step out of the shadows and start to do your public ministry. We don't know why Mary goes to him, but she was probably the one person in the room that she knew Jesus could do something about it. And so she goes to him, and she says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. They've run out of wine. And Jesus' answer is not one that I would give to my own mother. Okay, I don't intend to respond to a request by my mum by saying this, woman, what does this have to do with me? I have no intention, if my mum mum watches this, I have no intention, mum, of ever speaking in that way. And so the answer is surprising to us. And to our ears in the 21st century in the Western world seems insensitive at best, offensive at worst, and kind of like, Jesus, what are you even playing at here? Woman, what does this have to do with me? But as much as it might sound odd to us or an unusual way of speaking, actually using the word woman to refer to a female is actually a common way of speaking in the first century Jewish culture. And it's not actually a derogatory way of speaking. If you go through the Gospel of John, you will hear Jesus using this word over and over again. When he's talking from the cross to to his mother and to John, he says to Mary, woman, behold your son. If you you see him in in the garden when he's just risen from the dead and he goes to Mary Magdalene, he says, woman, why are you weeping? So it's not actually derogatory, or offensive, it's actually a common way of speaking, and it's used right the way through the Gospel of John as a way of Jesus interacting with females and with women. Now, having said that, the phrase, what does this have to do with me, is quite unusual, and seemingly a bit kind of, Jesus, I didn't know you were so passive-aggressive all the time. Chill out, man. There's a problem here. Why don't you do something about it? It is an unusual expression, but what it seems like in this moment is Jesus is coming out from his earthly family and he's saying, I am actually coming out from under you, Mary, and I'm going to go to the, do the will of my father. There's actually becoming in this moment like a separation between uh, his earthly family, if you like, and he's signaling them from this point onwards, I am going to follow the will of my father. Jesus later says, it's recorded in the Gospel of John, I only do what I see the father doing. So at the start of his ministry, I think what he's saying is, I am not subject to human authority or human requests. I'm actually subject to the authority of my Father in heaven. And what he wills, that's what I'll do. Mary, I'm not going to do what you will. I'm going to do the will of my Father in heaven. His agenda is to do the works that the Father has set before him, not the works that Mary might have set before him, if you like. So he's coming out from under her shadow And he's saying, no, 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 I'm going to do the will of the Father in heaven. I just love Mary's response. She just seems to be quite unbothered by what Jesus just said. And she just says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And it's just like, yeah, 
Jesus, yeah, fair enough, whatever you just said, but servants, do what he's about to tell you. I think she senses in her spirit something's afoot. Something is at play. Something is about to unfold. And so she said to the servants, do whatever he, Jesus, tells you to do. Her faith in Jesus is unwavering. I don't think she maybe understands why Jesus uses this expression, but she, her faith in him, yes, Jesus is going to do something. So do what he tells you to do. So I don't think she knows what's about to unfold, but she says, Jesus, do what he says. Do what he says to do. And so despite his comment to Mary and what he also says, my time has not yet come, which literally means it wasn't the moment to publicly reveal his glory. That expression is used through John to refer to the cross Okay, he often says, my hour has not yet come, my time has not yet come. So there's a sense which Jesus is saying, the fullness of the revelation of my glory has not yet come here. Despite that, Jesus sets about his work. Jesus gets going with his ministry. He sees a need and he does something about it. So he gathers the servants and he takes these enormous stone water jars that were used for Jewish rites of purification. 20 to 30 gallons, which is around 100 litres. So we're talking here about 600 litres of water. Around 720 bottles worth of wine in the way that we package up wine in our culture. And he gathers them, the servants, and he says, fill up these jars with water. But don't just fill them up. Fill them up to the maximum. Fill them up to the brim. Fill them right up. And you can almost imagine these water jars. You know when you, when you overfill a glass of water, it just starts to spill over. And there's a sense of which this, these are full of 600 litres of water. Now, imagine being a servant in that moment. And you know there's a problem because you know the wine has run out. And then Jesus, who you've probably never met before, suddenly says, fill up these 600 litres, fill them up to the brim. Are you, are you trembling? Are you excited? Are you thinking there's a sense of anticipation? Like, what is this guy on about? How much has he been drinking? What's he been smoking? What are you actually thinking in that moment about Jesus? Imagine, but they do it. They're obedient to his voice. They're obedient to what he says to them. Even though I don't think they're quite knowing what's going to happen. Just put yourself in their shoes for a moment. And you're before the son of man that you've never met before. And he just simply says, fill up these jars to the brim. Fill them up. And when the jars are filled to the maximum, something astonishing happens. It isn't recorded in the story what Jesus did. But according to what John wrote, he didn't speak over the water. He didn't even touch the water. He simply exercised his authority and his will and the water transformed into wine. It doesn't say he did, it doesn't say he did anything. The record is absent. He literally exercised his will and authority, and substances changed in the water. And in a moment, he takes 600 liters of water and he turns it into wine. 600 litres. This is not something small. This is enormous. And not only is there a sense of the scale of what Jesus has done in this moment, but the master of the feast also comments when the wine gets taken out, you've saved 
the best until last, which was not customary as we read about in the story. You've saved the best until last. This is astonishing that Jesus takes this water and he turns it into an abundance and an overflow of the best wine that has been served at the wedding. Friends, Jesus is generous beyond anything you can imagine. He sees your need. And he will meet your needs according to his glorious riches. He is the true bridegroom who never fails to deliver that which you need. He's not a God of scarcity. He's a God of abundance. And as much as that, actually it goes on, that wine in the Bible is a source of God's, is a sign of God's blessing. Right the way through the Old Testament, it's a sign of the blessing of God. And so an abundance of wine at this wedding signifies and equates to an abundance of God's blessing that have, been, that have now arrived in Christ Jesus. And as Paul goes on to write later, through whom we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the abundance of wine that is being poured out at this wedding is a sign that God's blessing has been abundantly poured out upon his people through Jesus Christ. Amen. It's an abundance. Of, you have been blessed, follower of Jesus, with every blessing in heaven, spiritually, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen. Someone say amen. Every spiritual blessing, he is not lacking in anything. He has met all your spiritual needs because of who he is and what he's done. Jesus has waited 30 years, and he finally lifts the veil of his glory at a wedding in a tiny village in front of his mum, some servants, and a few of his followers. Over lunch or in your small group discussion this week, think about this. Why did Jesus do that? Why does he reveal his glory for the first time in front of a few people in an insignificant village in Galilee? I'll leave you to think on that and chew on it over lunch. Jesus transforms this circumstance from lack and potential shame into abundance and joy and celebration. He takes that which is lacking and he turns it into abundance. And what happens, it says in this passage at the end, Jesus, through this sign, revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. What this sign did to his disciples is interesting. It doesn't say the servants believed in him, even though they were participants, even though they saw what happened. It doesn't actually say the servants believed in him. It says his disciples believed in him him. The Jesus that they had met in John 1, this, this sign showed to his disciples that he was the real deal, that he really was the Messiah, and it caused their faith to rise up once again. You see, faith is not one a one-time issue. Faith is not saying, oh yeah, I believed in you once, Jesus, that actually the more we see of Jesus' glory and his majesty and his splendor, the more it causes us to believe in him. And so what happens here is the disciples, they, they've, said, they've seen Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God, and you're the Messiah, and I believe in you. And then they see the sign, they say, I believe in you again. It causes my faith to rise up even more because I'm getting a sense of, oh my goodness, who this Jesus is. I'm seeing his revelation of his glory over and over and over again. But what is it about this sign? What is going on here that actually reveals his glory? Why 
is it's so powerful. Yes, obviously, what Jesus has done here. What is going on in this story? And to help us understand that, we need to see this onion, this layers of meaning that John is talking about and that John describes in his gospel. The first reason why this miracle, this sign, displays his glory is this, and it's a fairly obvious one. Jesus literally has authority over molecules and atoms and elements. He can change them from one substance to another because all things were made through him and for him, and therefore he has the power to change them. This miracle is spectacular in its nature, and it deserves attention. Because if Christ can turn water into wine by a very act of his will, surely there is no limit to his power. Surely he has authority over all things. No wonder the Apostle Paul later writes that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This sign reveals that Jesus has all authority. There is transformation that takes place when Jesus is in the house. When Jesus is present, change happens. When Jesus is present, transformation happens because there is a transforming power associated with the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? So the first reason why this sign helps us to understand who Jesus is and reveals his glory is because he has authority over all things, that he can literally take substances and turn them into something different because he is actually the author of the universe. All things are made through him and by him. Secondly, this sign points us forward to a greater glory that is to come. John writes, on the third day, at a wedding, in Cana, Jesus reveals his glory by turning water into wine. Three years later, on the cross, Jesus sheds his own blood, and on the third day, he reveals his glory not just to a few disciples at a wedding in Cana, but to the world and to the rulers and to the authorities by overcoming death. That in him and through him, we will be purified from our sin, that we will be raised from death into life. On the third day, Jesus revealed his glory. Jesus revealed his glory by triumphing over death, by putting death to shame, by, by, by beating the cross, by, by purifying us from our sin. There's a greater glory that this story points us towards. He's a God who doesn't just turn water into wine, but he's a God who turns death into life. Amen? He's a God who turns death into life. And just as he transforms water into wine... So he transforms sinners into saints through the cross. And at the wedding, he covers this family's shame. And on the cross, he covers your shame and your guilt once and for all time. You see, there's a greater glory at play in this story. He is clearly pointing forward. In this story, John, to Jesus' death and resurrection, he wants us to see beyond the wedding, to see the glory of Jesus that will be revealed on the third day when he rises from the dead. And thirdly, this sign points us to another wedding feast that is to come. 
this sign points us forward to the final wedding, when Jesus will return and God's people will be his bride for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. In this story, there is feasting and celebration at a wedding. In the final wedding, there'll be feasting and celebration forever. In this story, Jesus saves the best wine until last. At the greater wedding to come, he has saved the best until last because he will wipe away every tear and all sorrow and all pain and those things will pass away. Jesus is saving the best until last. There is a greater wedding feast to come when we will be, where God's people will be married to Jesus for all eternity in perfection, in wholeness, in joy, in feasting, and in celebration for all time, for all eternity. This wedding is a prophetic statement. It's a prophetic act, and it actually points us to, this, to, the, to the scripture from hundreds of years earlier, from the prophet Isaiah, where he writes this about this great wedding feast that will take place one day. It's going to come up on the screen. I want to read this. This is the wedding feast that you are invited to participate into and that John, I believe, has an eye to. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. So this wedding, it points us to a Jesus who is Lord over creation because he has all authority. It points us forward to the cross where he's going to reveal his glory over all creation. And it points us forward to the great wedding feast that is to come once and for all time. And the purpose of this sign is that you would believe in Jesus and therefore have life in his name. The reason why Jesus does these miracles and these signs is that you, here now in Swindon, on the 4th of February, 2024, would believe in Jesus and have life in his name. And if you are here this morning, and you would already call yourself a follower of Jesus, you would say, yeah, I've already trusted him. I've already put my faith into him. My plea to you this morning is this, behold Jesus afresh. Behold Jesus afresh. Let this sign fill your heart with awe and wonder and renewed faith that he's the God over all things that he died and rose again to reveal his glory and to purify you from your sin. 
and that he's coming back one day to undo all brokenness. Behold Jesus this morning. Behold him. There are times in our life where we feel, in our, in our journey of faith, where we feel, I'm so excited for Jesus. And there's times when we feel, oh, a bit stuck. It's hard going. And I want to say this morning, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God that has poured out every spiritual blessing upon you. Behold the Messiah who has all authority over substance, who turns lack into abundance. Behold him today, church. Behold him. Marvel at him. Delight in him. Just gaze at his wonder and say, wow, Jesus, how is it that you can take jars of water and turn them into feasting and celebration and joy and abundance and the best wine? How is it you can do that? How is it, Jesus, that you, that you died and you rose again, that I may be purified from my sin, that you transform me from a sinner into a saint? Behold Jesus, church. Behold him. He's so wonderful. And I just want to say this morning, if you are feeling in your faith a bit cold, a bit lukewarm, in a bit when we go back into a time of worship and singing, I just want to invite you just to, just to lay everything down before him and just say, come on. Oh, Jesus, I'm beholding you today. That this sign would actually cause worship and praise to rise up in you afresh today. And maybe you're here and you've never responded to Jesus. You might be coming to church for a long time. I just want to say to you this morning, come to him. Today is a day that you can come to Jesus and you can say, Jesus, I put my faith that you're the God who this story tells me that you are. That actually I'm choosing to put my trust and my faith into you. He overcame sin and death that you may find life and joy in him. And so in a bit, I'd love to invite you to respond to that. If that is you, there's a simple invitation to come to him. He covers your shame. He covers your guilt. He purifies you from sin. He transforms that which is lacking into newness of life. He takes that which is old and he brings it into new. And today, you can know Jesus for the first time. You can respond to him. You can say, Jesus, yep, today I'm trusting in you. And finally, maybe you're here today and you feel like you've run out of wine in your own life. Maybe you feel like you've run out of wine. Not literally that the cupboards are bare. You don't have to go to the supermarket after this preach. But in your life, you're facing huge need. You feel hopeless. You feel like you're in despair. You feel like you're lacking. You feel like you're out of power and strength, like you've got nowhere to go. If you would say this morning that you feel like you're out of wine, just before God right now, could you just hold your hands up before him? It might be small, it might be big. If you would say this morning, I feel like I've run out of wine. I just want to invite you to hold your hands out before God. Just for a moment. 
You don't have to stand up or come to the front or anything like that. I simply want to invite you to hold your hands out before God this morning. Jesus sees you this morning. Jesus sees you and he knows your need. He literally sees you and he knows your need. And he's a God who turns death into life. He's the God who turns sorrow into joy. He will provide everything you need. He will. It might not be how you might imagine it, but he will provide everything that you need. He has infinite power, infinite love, and infinite authority. And he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. And if that's you this morning, also know that he's the God who saves the best until last. So hold on. I want to call you this morning to hold on. If you feel like you're lacking, if you feel like you have run out of wine, when you face hardship and suffering, hold on. I want to invite you to hold on because there is a coming of a great wedding feast where all of your lack and all of your longing and all of your questions and all of your sorrow and all of your pain will be wiped away forever. He will transform all of our lack and all of our sorrow into feasting and celebration. The old will go and the new will come. And so this morning, I just want to say to you, if that is you, trust in Jesus. He sees you and hold on because he's got you and he'll see you home. And all of your longings and all of your questions will find their meaning, will find their answer at the great wedding feast that is to come for all time. And he will meet all of your longing. He will cover your shame. He will cover your guilt. He will meet your need because he's so good. And he's so abundant. And he's so loving. And he's so gracious. And he sees you just like at the wedding. He wasn't immune to the need. He saw it and he stepped in and he did something about it. He saw the brokenness of this world and he stepped in and he did something about it on the cross. And through his death, and resurrection. And in a moment, we're going to finish by breaking bread together. When we look at this passage, Jesus is feasting with his friends and his family. If I could just get the band to come up, if that's okay. Jesus is literally feasting with his friends at a wedding and his family. And that kind of is what we do. As we gather as the people of God, we are feasting with him, with our friends, and our family. And so we're going to celebrate. We're going to finish by celebrating communion together. And we're going to sing. And we're going to have joy in our hearts. And we're going to remind ourselves of who Jesus is. So how we're going to do this is that we've got a bunch of people that are going to hand out bread and juice. Just stay where you are. We don't have to have a big kind of everyone going to the tables. Bread and juice will come to you. And I was just thinking about this, you know, Jesus was feasting, and we're going to get a small piece of bread and a tiny piece of grape juice, which doesn't feel like feasting in the, in the material sense, but in the spiritual sense, what happens is we break bread, that Jesus is present with us. And it's not about how much bread we've got, or whether we've got real wine or grape juice. Jesus turns that, and he says, I'm turning your mourning into dancing. I'm transforming death into life. I'm meeting your need. I'm providing everything 
that unique. And actually, as we celebrate today, communion, as we participate together, he is the God who has turned death into life, amen? He's the God who, through his death and resurrection, has purified us from all our sin and all our shame. He's the God who has turned our mourning and our shame into dancing and joy. He's the God who has taken our lack into abundant and overflowing blessings. And he's the God who will return to make all things new and to wipe away every tear and every sorrow and every pain. So the juice is gonna come around and, and, the, and the bread. And what I just wanna invite you to do is as it comes around, just for a moment, behold Jesus. And these guys are gonna lead us in a song and then I'll just come back up and invite us to take the bread and the juice together and then we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing a wonderful song that proclaims about who Jesus is. And if you're here this morning and you're saying, I'm already a follower, use this as a moment to, to worship with utter abandon before him. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, turn to someone that you know who you came with and say, can I come to Jesus today? And at the end, if you feel like you've run out of wine, I'd love to invite you to go, to the, to go over here and we'll pray for you today and we'll lay hands on you and we'll say, God, come and meet needs according to your glorious riches.